Well, good morning, everybody. It's lovely to see you this morning. I am Chris, by the way. I haven't made many services just lately, but uh, yeah, I do belong to Abby. <laughs> right, as we look at this passage, uh, we're continuing in our series by Luke. By the way, people who aren't here, we've been reading through Luke, and we've come to these, this set of passages here. And uh, what we're seeing here is the absolute pivotal moment in Jesus' ministry on earth. This is where everything changes. This is the absolute pivotal point. And all this happens because his disciples finally recognize and acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah. And from this point on, Jesus can then set his satnav and rejig his satnav. Because at the moment, as uh, Tim Cracknell was saying a few weeks ago, he's been preaching and healing around the surrounding villages and towns. But once he's recognized as the Messiah, even by a few individuals, he can set his satnav directly for Jerusalem and the cross. It's an absolute pivotal point in Jesus' ministry. And as he's doing that, he's actually going then to finish the mission that he has been sent to earth for. I mean, as good as, and as excellent as his ministries had been, his preaching and his healing and his miracles had been around the surrounding, surrounding towns and villages, they really would have been for nothing had he not been recognized as the Messiah and he could carry on with the actual mission God had sent him for, which was to head to the cross. So as we look at our passage this morning, what, what we've got here, I think, is a bit of a sandwich. Now, I love sandwiches. They're, they are my most favorite thing in the world. I send Sam absolutely mad because she'll get home. She's prepared a lovely meal. The kids have all had it. I come back from work. No, it's all right, thanks. I'd rather have my favorite thing in the whole world, a cheese sandwich. In fact, it's even got to the point now where she even texts me before I even get home. Are you going to have this meal or are you going to have a sandwich? And most of the time, no, let the kids have it. I'm all right with a sandwich. So what we're looking at here, I think, is a bit of a sandwich. But we, and we've got Jesus in the first few verses. It's all about Jesus there. So Jesus is the bread there. And then we've got a, a big filling, quite a meaty filling, quite difficult to chew and digest in these passages, and then at the end, we've got Jesus again. So we're surrounded by Jesus, but there's going to be some tough stuff to digest in the middle of it. Okay, let's dive in and take our first bite of this sandwich. And we're going to walk through this passage. So in the first two verses, 18 and 19, Jesus asks, Who do people say that I am? And they answer, don't they? They answer, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets of long ago has been raised to life. And that's exactly what we're saying. If we just look back to verse 7 in, this, in chapter 9, verses 7 to 9, Herod's asking the same thing. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on, and he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead, John the Baptist. Others said Elijah had appeared. And still others that one of the prophets long ago had come back to life. So they, the disciples here have answered exactly what Herod had been uh, answered to. 
people were saying, was he John the Baptist? Well, Herod knew full well. He couldn't be John the Baptist because Herod had beheaded John the Baptist. But he was being likened to him because he was doing the same kind of thing. Crowds were flocking to Jesus wherever he was. Just like when John the Baptist was doing his ministry, crowds were flocking to him. So there was this kind of likeness here. He was drawing a crowd. He was drawing people out of Jerusalem sometimes to see him or out of the towns and villages. They were flocking to see him. But he couldn't be him. Herod had beheaded John the Baptist. Now why Elijah? Well, Elijah was expected to come before the Messiah. God had spoken through Malachi the prophet that Elijah would come before the Messiah, which obviously meant that people didn't see Jesus as the Messiah. They saw him as somebody before the Messiah. They didn't think of him as the Messiah. And also, Elijah didn't die. He was taken up to heaven on a chariot. So perhaps they were expecting Elijah, of all the prophets, to make an appearance because he didn't die. And also, that's why they say, I think that's why they distinguish Elijah from perhaps it's one of the prophets that have come back to life. Is it Elijah? Is it one of the prophets? So although the people did not recognize him as the Messiah, they did recognize and realize that this guy, Jesus, there was something special about him. And the same happens today, doesn't it? Some people will acknowledge Jesus as a good person, a good moral teacher. The Muslims respect and revere Jesus and consider him one of God's greatest prophets, but no more than a prophet. Well, that's how other people were calculating who Jesus was. Now, he turns to his disciples and asks that question. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? And as I was preparing this and reading that, this question sent shivers up my spine. Every time I read it, it does. I mean, we all believe Jesus, through the Spirit, is here right now. Can you imagine him turning to you, you Darren, you Morris, you Mike, you whoever, and asking, but what about you? Who do you say that I am right here, right now? Well, without thinking, we can easily remember that passage and remember exactly what Peter said. You're the Messiah, the Son of God. And it's easy to think of that, but what about if he was just facing you? Who do you say that I am right now? And your response would reveal quite a bit about what Jesus, who Jesus is, what he means to you. And we'll come to that in a minute, in the middle of our sandwich. So Jesus asked this to his disciples. And it's an enormously important question for them. And to them. Like I said before, Jesus' ministry pivots on whether they can answer this question right. It's like the million dollar question. Can they answer it correctly? Well, yes, they can, can they? Remember, Tim Cracknell was speaking a couple of weeks ago on the title, Who is this? At at that time, when Jesus was performing his miracles, calming the storm, healing the sick, raising the dead, the disciples were asking amongst themselves, Who is this? But they've seen these things now, and they can answer, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ, the anointed Messiah of God. But are they thinking, 
of who the Messiah actually is, or are they thinking of the Messiah they've been taught by the Jewish leaders at the time? Well, this is what the Jews thought the Messiah would be, or even still will be. They're still waiting for the Messiah, the Jews. I just uh, whipped this off one of the uh, Jewish, Jewish uh, websites. And the Messiah will be a great political leader, they say, descended from King David. He will be well-versed in Jewish law, observant of its commandments. He'll be a charismatic leader, inspiring others to follow him. He will be a great military leader who will win battles for Israel. He will be a great judge who makes righteous decisions. But above all, this is taken from recent times, he will be a human being, not a God or other supernatural being. So they were expecting this great political leader to lead them to break free of their chains from the Romans who were occupying the land at the time and win that land back for Israel and bring them back to the promised land that they can have just for themselves and their relationship with God. So they've recognized him as the Messiah. They've answered that question right. What does Jesus say? Straight away, don't tell anyone that you've got this question right at the moment. By this he's saying, great, you've answered correctly that I am the Christ. But now, let me explain just what kind of Christ I am. Just who the Christ really is going to be. See, if they were going to tell anybody else about this at the time, he might be hindered from his true mission to head towards the cross. He, by crowd, by people power, they would grab him and raise him, lift him on his shoulders maybe. This is the Messiah. This is the one that's going to lead us, win battles for us. But no, don't tell anybody about it, says Jesus. Let me tell you now and explain to you just who the Messiah is, truly is and what his mission will be. And what does he say? The real Messiah is to be rejected, to suffer, to be killed. And then to be raised from the dead. And this is Jesus' first explicit prophecy of what is going to happen to him. This is the gear change. This is the pivotal moment. This is and always was the plan for the Messiah, for Jesus the Messiah. And notice in our passage here, there's two musts. This must happen. It had to happen this way. In verse 21, he strictly warns them to tell nobody. And then he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders. And he must be killed and raised to life again. It was always going to happen. This is the plan for the Messiah. And how hard it must have been for the disciples to hear that and to understand this. They'd been with him through, during his ministry at the moment. They'd seen all this healing. The crowds were flocking to him, enjoying him, just holding him up to be such a wonderful person. How on earth was he going to be rejected by these people? He'd generally been finding favor with the crowds wherever they went. They themselves had been sent out. A couple of pastures before, he'd sent them out. And with his authority, they had done the same thing. They'd cast out demons. They'd healed the sick. This was definitely the power of God working in him and through them. How on earth was the Messiah going to be rejected 
and suffer and die seemed ridiculous in their ears. But they'd seen him do things. They were now certain and confessed that Jesus was the Messiah, the chosen one of God. So that's the outer part of the bread of our sandwich of this passage. Now we're going to dig into the meat, the chewy bit, the hard to digest bit of this passage. Because just after that we see another must. Then he said to them, whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever wants to follow me, must deny themselves and must take up their cross daily. I'm just going to read that passage as it appears in the message. Then he told them what they could expect for themselves. Anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat. I am. Don't run from suffering. Embrace it. Follow me and I'll show you how. Self-help is no help at all. Self-sacrifice is the way, my way. It's the way to find in yourself your true self. What good would it do to get everything you want and lose you, the real you? If any of you is embarrassed with me and the way I'm leading you, know that the Son of Man will be far more embarrassed with you when he arrives in all his splendor, in company with the Father and his holy angels. It's difficult to listen to, isn't it? Putting Jesus first, recognizing him as Lord, and suffering will come. Rejection will come. Self-sacrifice will come. And there's quite, before, before this has happened, there's quite a good little helpful bit that John the Baptist says about self-sacrifice. And I think it's quite good. Obviously, John the Baptist, before Jesus had come, or Jesus is just appearing on the scene, is the superstar of the, of the time. People are coming to flock to him, to be baptized by him, to listen to him. And when Jesus appears on the scene, he recognizes Jesus as someone greater than himself. And what does he say? He must become greater. I must become less. Just needs to let Jesus take over and himself become less. He knew Jesus was more superior. He needed to be in the driving seat. So are we willing to sacrifice our time? Do we really need that extra TV program? Or can we sacrifice our time and be with the Lord? Can we go out and help people in, in our community groups rather than be happy to be on our own and guard our time together? Are we willing to sacrifice our things? Do we really need the brand new iPhone in our pocket? Or the brand new shiny car? Or can we give money to the poor? Can we help Jesus' mission that way? Are we willing to sacrifice being comfortable? in ourselves, in our lives? Or are we willing, like we're told we must do if we're going to follow Jesus, to suffer, to be rejected? Am I willing to sacrifice taking Aaron to football every Sunday? 
for Jesus, to recognize him as Lord. Well, we need to work through all things to see if Jesus is Lord or not in everything we do. But Jesus is not giving these commands, as we've read, to be mean or for the sake of it, to be a dictator or to test us. He's given us these commands as our loving brother. Because he knows what is the path to follow to fulfill our true roles as being human beings. He is the creator who created us for a purpose. To enjoy him and to be in relationship with him. That's our purpose, our true purpose as human beings. And he's left us instructions to do that. We must take up our cross daily. Be willing to suffer for him. I'll give an illustration there. In, in our house, we've had an extension, and there are many rooms in our house. But in every room, you will find something from Ikea. So let me take you through what usually happens when we go to Ikea, that dreaded of all furniture stores. We'll pull up, and we'll queue and walk around so slowly, because everybody's in Ikea at the time, and we end up sweating, and we're queuing so slowly as we go round for what seems like a week, really. And after Sam's taken me for an extensive tour through every single item of furniture around the store, and we just think we've finished and we've said our fifth apology to the staff because the kids have climbed in the beds and in, hidden in the wardrobes and jumped on top of the beds, we get to nearly the end. And then, behold, there's more things. There's the IKEA marketplace, and we do the same thing again, going around all them, shouting at the kids for not picking up the glass and the mirrors and showing things around. And we finally get through the counter and get it back. Let's just say it's a chest of drawers this time. We get this back. We rip open the box because they never have any parts missing ever, and you've never got to re-box it up and send it straight back, is, do you ever? Yeah, right. But this time, the box, we're so careful. We open the box just in case there's something missing. Put the box over there. Get the parts out. Look round, and the kids have used the box as a house, and they're cutting windows and doors through it. But anyway, it's open. It's ready. The parts are there. Instructions? No, I'm a man. We don't need instructions. We'll throw that right out of the way. I'm a man. It's in my DNA. We don't need those. And eventually, after many, many hours and a few threatening words to the wardrobe with a hammer in my hand, pointing to the fire outside that it's going to go to if it doesn't go together in a minute, it stands there in front of us, looking like a perfect chest of drawers. It's there. So we carry it up the stairs. It takes another 20 minutes trying to get it up the stairs. We place it in the kids' bedroom, and we go to open the drawer, and they don't open. They're upside down, or something's wrong. What's happened? I haven't followed the Creator's instructions. It's not fit for purpose. It will not work how the Creator, the designer, designed it to work. It's just not fit for purpose. Which will be our fate if we don't follow Jesus' instructions here. We just won't be fit for purpose. The purpose we were created for, to enjoy him and have relationship with him. But instead, and this is a terrible, but verse 26, he will be embarrassed or ashamed of us if we are embarrassed of him. We're not willing to talk about him even. So if we're not prepared to do these things or not prepared to face persecution, suffering, self-sacrifice, right now in the West, which is pretty comfortable for us, 
compared to other places in the world, although there's definitely a wind of change at the moment, isn't there? There's the forces trying to drive through to rid schools of Christian teaching, the persecution of Christians wanting to wear Christian symbols at work. You can go on and on. But what about the people who are bringing these persecutions against us. They need Jesus just as much as we do. We need to stand up. We need to announce Jesus to them. Make Jesus known to these people. They need him just as much as us. They need a savior too. No matter what the consequences are to us. I mean, if we're not prepared to do these things, to take a stand here, even in the very smallest things, like bringing up the gospel in our everyday conversations, at work or wherever we are, then we're going to have some very, very interesting conversations when we get to heaven with those who have lost their lives in the name of Christ, standing up for Christ. We're going to have some very interesting conversations. Just recently, the, the Egyptian Coptic Christians beheaded by ISIS for standing for their faith, for not renouncing their faith. What are we going to say to them when we get to heaven if we're not prepared to self-sacrifice and suffer a little on account of Jesus. In Matthew, Jesus says, men will hate you because of me. If we're true to Jesus, men will hate us. Sounds like such a hard teaching and difficult to stomach. Remember the sandwich analogy here. But always hold on to the truth of what's going on here. In Matthew 5, we read, not only that, count yourselves blessed Every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to discredit me. What it means is that the truth is too close for comfort and they are uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens. Give a cheer even. For though they don't like it, I do, says Jesus. And all heaven applauds and knows that you're in good company. My prophets and witnesses have always gotten into this kind of trouble. And so should we. Later on in Acts, the disciples have actually got this, haven't they? The, dis- the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they have been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah, even though they were warned strictly that they were under pain of death if they did. So the disciples and the apostles were now living this out in Acts. Why? Well, there are comforts around, aren't there? In Matthew 10, we hear, But when they arrest you, don't worry about what to say. At the time, it will be given to you what to say. For it will not be you speaking, it will be the Spirit through you. We have the Spirit to comfort us. Jesus has gone to the cross, sent us his Spirit to comfort and minister to us. We're not on our own. We never have to take a stand on our own. Jesus, through his spirit, is always there, comforting and surrounding us. So we've done well. We've got through that tough part of the sandwich. Let's get back to Jesus on the other side, the bread of Jesus. So verse 27, sometimes thought was a tricky little verse this one on its own truly i tell you some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of god 
And many atheists have jumped up pretty quickly and said, Ha! Failed prophecy. These people are obviously dead now. When did they see Jesus? Jesus is a false prophet. He's not worth trusting. But what can we say to that? Well, it's not hard, is it? All we've got to do is read two verses on the transfiguration. Some of those standing there, Peter, James, and John, he took to the mountain, and they saw the kingdom. They saw him in his glory. Right there. That prophecy is done a couple of days later at that mountain. It's fulfilled, isn't it? So as we look at the transfiguration now, what could look a little strange here is that obviously there's four Gospels written. Three explicitly record the transfiguration. The one that doesn't is John. And John was here with Jesus on the mountain. Strange. Well, why, why is he not writing about it? He was one that was actually there. Or does he? Let's read from... John 1, a minute. Just a verse from John 1. John 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among, among us. And here we go. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. I think we've got the transfiguration a little bit there. John is telling that he was there. That's the transfiguration right there in John, even though it's not an explicit passage. In fact, it could be argued that the transfiguration was such a massive event and has had such an impact on John that his entire gospel is interwoven with the theme of light and darkness. It was burned into his psyche. Read a couple of other passages in, in John 1, 4 to 9. Talking about Jesus, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. It's all through John. It's all through the book of John, this theme of light. This theme of Jesus' glory shining out. It's burnt into him. And it's not only explicit in the Gospels. In Peter, in the second... In Peter... Second Peter, we read this. 2 Peter 1, 16 to 18. Peter writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we, when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice coming that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. There's the transfiguration there too. And this is the most important revelation of Jesus for the disciples and for us. It changes who the Messiah is. That's why it was burned deep into their hearts and minds. But back to Luke. 
Verses 30 and 31. Moses and Elijah appear in glorious splendor. They've come from the presence of God. And they are in their glorious bodies. Jesus, in his human form, has yet to even get to heaven. And yet his body is shining with glory too. Showing where he's come from. He's come from heaven, even though he has yet to get there in human form. He's been sent from heaven, from the throne of the Father. So why, did, why was Moses there? Well, Moses was there perhaps representing the law. Moses, the lawgiver, the deliverer from the Old Testament. He delivered Israel out of Egypt, didn't he? His work was completed, by the way, by Joshua, who took Israel to the promised land. Elijah's appeared as well. His work was completed by Elisha, another form of the name Joshua. And now Jesus comes to fulfill both of these things. He fulfills the law through Moses. He fulfills the prophecies, over 300 prophecies. And obviously Jesus, his Hebrew name, Joshua too. They talked to him about his own exodus. The exodus, the magnificent exodus, the ultimate exodus that brings fulfillment of these prophecies brings deliverance from slavery but not from Egypt from sin itself the ultimate exodus that would take him to be killed and to be raised back to life it was indeed time for Jesus to set his face to the cross But how can Jesus the Messiah, just a man, no matter how good he was, fulfill all these things? Answer, a man couldn't do these things. And this is how we find out. Because as two superhumans, of superheroes of the faith, depart the scene, Elijah and Moses, God declares, this is my son whom I have chosen. The chosen one. Or the other Gospels, whom I love, listen to him. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is God the Son. It's not a human that's going to the cross. God is going to the cross. And that makes all the difference. God on the cross can fulfill the laws, can fulfill the prophecies that only God on a cross can deal with. It also means, as we were talking earlier, about people suffering. That God hasn't remained distant from suffering. He's become part of it in this world. He knows what we're going through. And the voice of the Father, coming from heaven, gives that validity to Jesus' claim about himself. In, a, in another place, Jesus spoke again to the people and he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenge him. Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony isn't valid. Because they knew in the law that you needed two testimonies to make your claim valid. And it's true, isn't it? Anyone can make a claim about themselves. You think the Princess Royal visits a psychiatric ward. And she's walking around and being shown these people in the hospital. She goes to see this one person and he stood there giving it a bit of this. She says, oh, who are you? 
Oh, I'm Andy Murray. Who told you you're Andy Murray? God did. And the chap in the bed next door sits up. I did not. See that anybody can claim something for themselves. But no. This testimony is from God. The Father has given validity to his claim. He is the Son of God. He is God the Son. And he's going to the cross for us. Listen to him. Listen to him, God says. In the Amplified Version, it says, Yield to him. Listen to him. Obey him. Jesus the Messiah, God, must be rejected, suffered, and be killed. As true disciples of Christ, if we're to follow him, we must follow him through rejection and suffering. But there's, there was that other must. He must be raised to life after. He's gone back to the Father to testify for us. We are not just going to follow him through suffering. We're going to follow him to glory. He's made the way. He's going to bring us in relationship with the Father back to glory. And he's going to send his spirit. So just as Jesus was shining, his glory was coming, shining out from him, it will shine out from us if we follow those instructions will be like a light to moths. They will come because they will see that light, that glory, bursting from us. So the cross is glorious because the glorious one went to it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, there are some difficult words in this passage, some difficult words for us to digest, to follow us, but to follow you. But we know that you're giving us these instructions because you love us. You want the best for us. You want us to be fulfilled humans, to fulfill our purpose, to have a right relationship with you, Father God, to have a true loving relationship as a brother with Jesus. And we just thank you that you, we do not have to just follow you to the cross, but through everything that the cross meant. Our sins can be washed away, wiped away, and we can follow you through death to the presence of your Father. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.